Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Dwayne. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm also the third string cajon player on the worship team, so occasionally I'm up there. Um, I, I just want to say a really uh, a quick word, just because of, of what just happened here, that as someone who used to be a full-time pastor with a family, um, there's a lot that goes into that. And the family gives a lot to people who lead churches like LifePath. So I want you to be mindful of Keith as he goes on this trip, but I also want you to be mindful of his family and hold them up in prayer. Um, and that's something that, uh, that I think is really, really important. And Tom as well, uh, Tom and his family. Um, when, you, when you give of your life to serve God, um, sometimes uh, the family can feel the, the brunt of that. And so we want to pray for that. In fact, why don't we just say another quick prayer right now? It can't hurt to pray again, right? But I, I want to say a special prayer. So join me. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we are part of a community that uh, is listening to your spirit and, and going all over the world to find where you want us to serve. But Lord, serving you comes with sacrifice sometimes. And so I want to lift up right now Keith and his family Bethany and Kai and Judah and Sariah. And we pray that you would help them understand that they are part of this journey, that they are part of supporting him and therefore part of supporting your kingdom. Give them peace while he is away. Encourage them and strengthen Keith as he is away from his family and help him to know that they are taken care of. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the middle of a series called Holy-ish. And the ish is very important. We're talking about what it means to be holy, but not in the ways that you think that might mean. Holy often means, uh, in our modern, modern uh, vocabulary, holy sort of means like holier than thou, like you think you're better than someone, like maybe you're condescending a little bit, or it's about your behavior. But we're talking about holy-ish because holy really just means set apart, means being different. So how can we be different than the world around us? How can we look different than the other people in the world? The way uh, we talked about it last week, the, the idea of living questionable lives. Live a life that makes people around you question Oh, why do you do that? Why do you value those things? Why do you give up that? Right? So we want to we talk about what it means to be holy-ish. Today I have the uh, task of, of talking to you guys about being holy at work. And this is something that we often separate uh, our two worlds, our church life, our Jesus life, right? And then we have our work life, what we do to earn money. Um, but we need to talk about those two things together, right? Uh, and when I say work, let me just preface this by saying whatever you do in your daily work, right? That could be maybe you go to an office and that's your work. Maybe you work primarily in the home with your children. That is your work. Maybe you're a student when you go to class and you're studying. That is your work. So whatever it is that you do on a daily basis that is your daily work, that's what I'm talking about. How do we be holy? How can we be set apart, be different than the rest of the world when it comes to work? Well, I first have to ask the question, why do we work? Right? So uh, my kids are about the age where they're starting to talk about getting 
jobs or getting summer jobs or getting part-time jobs. And the question is, why? Why do you want to do that? You're only 15. You don't need to work yet. But why do they want to work? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but the first one's probably money, right? I remember when I was 16, my very first real job, and that wasn't not working for friends or neighbors or something like that, but my very first real job, I worked at SeaWorld of Texas. This was a great job for a 16-year-old. So when I was in high school, SeaWorld came to San Antonio and it opened and it was great because we had this big giant theme park and San Antonio was moving up in the world. You know, it was awesome. People were vacationing there. And our high school was the closest high school to SeaWorld. So naturally, in the summer, everybody in my high school got summer jobs at SeaWorld. Well, those of us who were in some sort of performing arts, we were singers or dancers or actors or something like that, we all went to the auditions because they were holding auditions for the talent part, right? Because they're entertainers at any theme park. They're singers and dancers and da-da-da-da-da. And so we thought, yeah, we're going to go do this. So we all went and we auditioned. And there, there were, I don't know how many of us there were. There were hundreds of us probably. Um, but SeaWorld didn't hire any high schoolers for the singers or the dancers or the actors. They hired adults for that. Good for you, SeaWorld. That makes sense. But what they did do is they let all of us teenagers who wanted to be in entertainment and pass the audition, we were costume characters. So I was hired as a costume character at SeaWorld. I spent the summer uh, of, between my junior and senior year dressing up like Shamu, and more importantly, Winston Walrus. Winston, he's, he's not as quite as well known as Shamu, but Winston Walrus was an important part of that character show on stage, and I still know all of the choreography, and I can do it all for you, you know, just imagine I'm in a walrus costume, that, it works better. So this was my job, and so why, why have this job? What were some of the perks of this job? Well, I'll tell you the perks of this job. You see, back, back in 1990, I made $4.85 an hour, and that, my friends, was $1.05 higher than the minimum wage. So I was raking in the cash. All my friends who had jobs in park ops, park operations, they're the guys who sweep up and scrape the gum and stuff. They were making minimum wage, right? And then my other friends who were working in food service, frying the french fries and stuff, they were making, I was entertainment. So I made some good money, right? And it was also this really like interesting like caste system in a way because we all had different color uniforms. So all the employees kind of knew that we'd be walking around in our greens our green, it was green, yeah, they were ugly, but still, it was shorts and a shirt, and we'd be in our green uniforms, we're like, yeah, that's right, we're entertainment, right? So, so there was a little bit of the money thing going on, but there was a little bit of sort of the pride factor of like, yeah, yeah, I'm a big deal, you know? And then, and then sometimes it was just, we work because it's engaging and it's fun. We got to do cool stuff, like, um, I remember this one time, uh, this is a great story. So I, I got to be uh, Shamu in all kinds of different situations, right? Mostly in the park at the front gate and stuff. But occasionally, we would go off-site. And when you did an off-site appearance as a costume character, you took the costume with you and you get to the site and you put on the costume. And it was for whatever reason, uh, it depended. But in this particular case, we'd gone to the airport. And we're in the airport because somebody was coming, I don't know who, but somebody was landing in a plane and getting off the plane, and San Antonio Visitors Bureau wanted Shamu to be there to say, welcome to San Antonio, we have SeaWorld, right? That's the idea. So they, they sent us out there. So I, I went, and one of my other friends who was a co-worker, and we get uh, to the airport, and we change, we put on, I'm Shamu, and uh, he's uh, Pete the Penguin, right? So he's Pete the Penguin, I'm Shamu, the people get off the plane, we wave hi, it's all great, and then we go back in the bathroom to change, to leave. And this, the Shamu costume is, is heavy. 
right? So the, the bottoms, it's just like overalls. So you're wearing like these furry pants in 100 degree weather, which is great. It was just sort of like Velcro overalls. But then the head was about this big, right? And it rested on the top of your head with like a helmet thing and rested on your shoulders. It was about 65 pounds. And, and you'd see out of the mouth, the mouth was made of mesh and you could see, but people couldn't see in. And your arms would be through these little things that were sort of your, you know, your flippers or whatever. I don't know what, what orcas have. But anyway, so when, when you had to put it on or take it off, you had to like lean over like this and you bend down and you put it on the ground and then you get out of it, right? So to put it on, you bend over and you get in it and somebody had to help you lift it up and put it on you. So we're in the bathroom getting undressed back into uh, our regular uniforms. And um, so my friend had Pete the Penguin completely taken off. I had taken the Shamu head off and had the bottoms on. And we hear the door open. And not only do we hear the door open, this is a public bathroom in the airport, right? I mean, of course people are going to come in. The door opens and we hear the voice of a small child. And it was really important when you were a costume character that you not destroy the myth, right? I can't tell you the number of times people would, would come up to me and I'd be posing for pictures with kids and they'd be like, hey, it must be pretty hot in that costume, huh? Don't talk to the whale. I mean, really, just, just go with it. Just pretend. So the, the, the fantasy is really important and this kid is about to come in and see Shamu in half and a person inside of him, right? So that's a traumatic thing to happen in the bathroom. So I look at my friend and he looks at me and he kicks Pete the Penguin's costume back underneath the stall behind him and I grab, bend down and grab this head and he picks it up and throws it on me. It's a little bit crooked. I can't even get my arms in the armholes and I'm standing there like this and this kid walks in and goes, Shamu! And so I had a meet and greet in the bathroom with a kid. I, there were probably pictures and there were probably questions later in his life like, Daddy, how does Shamu use a toilet? I don't know how that would have worked out. But anyway, so sometimes we work for the money and sometimes we work for the fame and the glory and sometimes we work just to be Shemu in the bathroom. I don't know. Um, so there are all kinds of different reasons that we work. And we're going to talk today about a theology of work that will help us be set apart, that will help us work different. That's what I want you to think about. Work different. How do we work different? different. Well, the first thing that I want us to understand is that we have a vocation. And when I say vocation, I don't mean a career that you are already doing. I don't mean a job that you get paid for. Our vocation as followers of Jesus is to do the things of the kingdom. The word vocation in English comes from a Latin root vocare, which means to call. Same root as like vocal or vocalize or something like that. Vocare means to call. Our calling, our vocation, is to do the things of the kingdom. Jesus said it this way. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. A lot of us who memorized it in one of the older translations. Seek ye first. There was even a song that we used to sing when I was a kid. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things shall be added unto you. Jesus isn't talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about why are you worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. That's not important. That's, not, that's going to take care of itself if you pursue your calling. Pursue your vocation. Seek the kingdom. So we need to actually have that in our mind. That our vocation is the kingdom. 
in Revelation, uh, it talks about it this way. This is at the end of the whole story. Um, and if you need to brush up on Revelation, uh, go to our website and listen. A few months ago, we preached a sermon series on Revelation. It was really, really good. Uh, so this is sort of in the beginning. And this is what's happening here is that there is this vision that John is having. And there's nobody that can open the scroll. And finally, the lamb who appears as though he was slain comes. And the lamb can open the scroll. And everybody rejoices. And they sing a song of praise. And this is one of the things that they say. And you, Lamb of God, Jesus, you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. The end of the story is that you and I become priests of this kingdom of God, and we reign on the earth. Don't be scared by the word priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents God. A priest is the representative of God to the people. The priest communicates on behalf of God. The priest intercedes to and from God. So we become the priests of the kingdom. Our vocation, our calling, is about the kingdom. It's not about what you do for your daily work. It's not about the job you have or what you fill your day with. Your vocation, your calling, is the kingdom of God. First Peter continues with this uh, priestly theme, and he says, uh, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, here's what priests do. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So what is your vocation? What's your calling? It's the kingdom. It's to show others the goodness of God. That's what you're called to do. So if we're going to build a theology of, of, of working different, this is the first thing that we need to know. So we need to know that our vocation is the kingdom. Our vocation is is the kingdom. So when you start talking about your vocation, what you've been called to do, remember that it's to, to be a representative of God, to bring the kingdom into existence. Your vocation is the kingdom. But the second thing that we need to remember is that our priority, our priority is Jesus. Now I want to talk for a second about that word priority because we often make it plural in our vocabulary, don't we? We talk about our priorities. Oh, I've got to figure out all my priorities. Well, by definition, a priority is something that is above all else. It is one thing that is prior to everything else. So definitively, you can only have one priority. So if you're thinking about your priorities, then you're not doing it right. There's only one priority that is possible. Because if two things are priority, which one is priority over the other? Whichever one it is, that's the priority and everything else falls under it. That's the, def the definition of the word. And when we think about our faith that way, it makes total sense. Jesus is the priority. He's the first. Jesus is Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. Does that make sense? You can't make Jesus Lord of one part of your life and not the rest of it. So your priority is Jesus. So if Jesus is going to be the one who sort of dictates the way I, I uh, serve in the world, and Jesus is going to be the one who dictates the way I have relationships with people in the world, then Jesus is going to be the one who dictates how and why I do what I do at work. The priority is Jesus. So, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. Makes sense, right? You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to... You could really insert anything right here. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money. 
You can't serve God and be enslaved to uh, your job. You can't serve God and be enslaved to the reputation that you're trying to build. You can't serve God and be enslaved to financial security. You can't serve God and be enslaved to whatever. You can't serve two masters. Jesus has to be the priority. And he's got to infuse everything we do. I was reading uh, in Colossians and, and I was reading a commentary. And I, I, this quote was really compelling to me. So I wanted to put it up here. Uh, this is Robert Wall talking about Colossians. And he says uh, in a passage I'm going to read in just a minute related to that passage. He says, what does it mean to serve two masters? One on the earth, that is the company or the boss. And another in heaven, that is the Lord Christ. In my opinion, this is exactly the dilemma that continues to face all workers who serve the Lord. Who is it that reigns where we live and work? Especially in the workplace, is our primary ambition to have a career and to move ahead in competition with other workers? Now this is interesting because he's commenting on a passage in Colossians where Paul is talking to slaves. And, and Paul says, slaves obey your masters. And we look at that and we're like, oh, okay, either A, that's really terrible, the Bible's condoning slavery, or B, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not a slave. Well, two of those things, both of those things, really need to be addressed because the way scholars look at this, it, it, it's a struggle because we don't want to look at it as condoning slavery, but we have to understand the social and historical context in which Paul lived. And when we say slavery, we automatically think about the United States, the antebellum period, and the, the terrible atrocities of slavery in this country. That's not really what slavery was like. Yes, it was still slavery, but it was more like indentured servitude. It was much more similar to having a job that, like you and I do. So we could look at this next verse and substitute some of these words. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. What if we just pretended for a second and we substituted and we said, employees, obey your bosses in everything you do. How would that sound to us? Obey your bosses in everything you do. Try to please them all the time and not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord and rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. What if we took that mindset into our jobs, into our daily work, into our schools, into our homes? What if we took that mindset and we said to ourselves, I'm not really serving my boss. I'm not really writing this paper for my professor. I'm not really doing, I am serving Jesus because Jesus has put me in this place and I am working as if Jesus is my master or is my boss or is my professor or teacher or whatever. It's a mindset shift that allows you to put Jesus in the first place in the priority spot. So, if our vocation is the kingdom and our priority is Jesus, then the last building block for a good theology of work, to be able to work different, is that our work itself is love. Our work is love. What do we do all day? We love. Here's what Paul says in Colossians. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, 
If you're going to be holy people, you've got to clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. You want to look different at work? Try those on for size. How many co-workers do you have who clothe themselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness? What does it mean to be holy at work, to be set apart at work? What does it mean to be different at work? It means to be these things. And most importantly, it means to be clothed with love. Above all else, we clothe ourselves with love. Love for other people. And it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a salesman and you sell widgets, your real job is to love the people you're selling to. And to love the people you're selling for. And to love the people you're selling with. That's your job. A lot of times we think about, well, if I'm going to be holy at work, if my job is going to be uh, sort of a, a kingdom-oriented job, then I have to maybe quit what I'm doing and, and go do something that, that, you know, maybe I have to become a priest or a minister or a missionary or a monk. Or No. Your job, wherever you are placed, is to love others. It's so important. Jesus says it over and over again. People asked him, hey, what's the most important commandment? If we're going to follow you, what's the most important thing we need to know? And he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke's version of the story, they, they follow this up with a question, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story you might be familiar with. It's called the Good Samaritan. And it's about a man, a Jewish man, who was beaten by robbers and left to die. And people passed him by and left him and didn't take care of him. And the Samaritan, who was of a different religious background, a different national background, Samaritans were despised by Jews. The Samaritan came and helped him and nursed him back to health and left him with an innkeeper and paid the innkeeper to take care of him, right? But here's the thing we may not realize. When we think about loving your neighbor and the story of the Good Samaritan, we might be tempted to think that the Samaritan was loving his neighbor. But that's not what Jesus says. He says in the follow-up to that story, who was the neighbor to the one who was beaten? And they said, oh, the Samaritan. So Jesus is saying to a bunch of Jews, guess who your neighbor is? It's the one who doesn't look like you. Your neighbor is the one who's different from you. Your neighbor is the one who has a different religious background than you. Your neighbor is the one who has a different cultural background. Your neighbor's the one who you are tempted to not like. So whether that's at work or at school or in whatever situation you find yourselves in, loving other people, loving your neighbor means loving even the least worthy in your mind or the least lovable in your mind. And again, Jesus says that when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey the Father's commandments and remain in his love. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. It couldn't be clearer. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. What's your commandment? Oh, my commandment? Love each other. Love each other. That's the command of Jesus. And then in Galatians, Paul says it this way, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we have to choose love at work. We have to be able to love in our work, through our work, while we're at work. Again, whatever that daily work looks like for you, that's what we need to do. We need to do three things. We need to choose love in three ways. We need to choose love over productivity. We're all tempted to be productive, 
it's an artifact of our Puritan roots, right? We're Americans. And work, work will set us free. Work will be what saves us. It's not really biblical. Thanks, Puritans. But we've inherited that. Productivity is not all it's cracked up to be. How many of you have ever been at, at work or in a work situation? Um, I'm trying to make this example as generic as possible. But like imagine you're, you're engaged in a task. You're doing something and it's got a deadline of some sort. And you're, you're getting there but you're, you're running a little bit behind. And you're trying to finish this task. And all of a sudden somebody shows up. They show up at your desk. They show up at your cubicle. They show up in your office. And they just want to talk. And they just want to be there. And you're like, I've got to get this done. I don't have time to talk to you right now. Please just leave me alone. But they keep talking. And pretty soon you realize... Something's on their mind. Something's on their heart. Maybe they're hurting. Maybe they've got a concern about something that's going on. And all of a sudden, you're presented with an opportunity to choose. Do I choose love or do I choose productivity? My boss might yell at me if I don't turn this report in on time. You know, if Chandler didn't get those numbers turned in, you know, the, the weenus, the weekly estimated net usage statistic, if you're a fan of friends, right? I mean, turning those reports out is important. But loving the person in front of you is important. We have to choose love because we're not what we produce. We are not what we produce. We have to choose love over praise. Praise is tempting. We all like to be praised by our employees, by our employers, by our co-workers. But we have to choose love over praise. We have to choose love over getting accolades for what we do with our lives. Why? Because we are unconditionally accepted. We remember that we are unconditionally accepted by God. And we don't need praise. So we have to choose love over praise. And the final thing is we choose love over power. Power comes in a lot of forms. Could be money. Could be a promotion or a raise. Could be education. Uh, any sort of power. But we have to choose love over power. Maybe that means missing a promotion. Passing it up. Maybe that means choosing a different path. We choose love over power because we connect with others in our vulnerability and weakness. We don't advance the kingdom of God because we have power and we force it into being. We advance the kingdom of God because we become like Jesus. We become a servant. We become the least of these. And we choose love over power. Henry Nouwen, a great author, writer. Um, he was a, a, a priest. And um, uh, just we're a huge fans of Henry Nouwen. Over there in our library, we've got a ton of Nouwen books. Um, and in fact, I think there's one on the shelf uh, that's even called... Uh, this, this phrase I'm about to tell you, that Henry Nouwen used this phrase. He calls it downward mobility. Downward mobility. The reason Henry Nouwen used this phrase is because after a long career as someone who was one of the pioneers in the early field of psychology and one of the very first people to ever combine psychology and religion, he was a professor at Notre Dame. He was a professor at Harvard. Then he was a professor at Yale. He ended up going back to Harvard. And at some point in his life, he finally decided this is not a place where I can express the kingdom of God. And he finally ended up moving into a community for mentally and physically disabled people called L'Arche, L'Arche Community that was started by Jean Vanier. And, and so Henry Nouwen lived out his days serving the least of these, helping people to dress and to bathe. He calls it downward mobility. To serve in the kingdom of God, we don't look for upward mobility. We look for downward mobility. How can we become the least of these?